Hi again, and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker. And I'm Carla Rose Shaughnessy. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to Ricarda Morrow-Tate, the first woman to fly around the world. Okay, I'm intrigued. When actually is this? So it's 1948, just after the war, and she's what they called at the time an aviatrix, and that's a female pilot, although I doubt anyone actually uses that word anymore. I quite like it, though. Aviatrix sounds a bit mischievous and a bit naughty. I don't really like um, feminine versions of, of job names, but there's just something about aviatrix, and it suited Ricarda because she was such a daredevil and she was a pioneer. It's a bit weird, is it? I'm slightly going to disagree with you on this one. I mean, men being aviators and you know, women come along and suddenly you need a new word, aviatrix, but what really grinds my gears is they're not simply all pilots. There's mm. clearly a bit of French grammar getting in the way here, masculine and feminine words, and which is in some ways hardly surprising as the French are the real pioneers in aviation and were also the first people to license pilots. Mm, it's not also it's not as if women were late to the party. I mean the Wright brothers make their first hop, skip and a jump at the end of 1903, and Therese Peltier becomes the first woman to fly a plane less than five years later. And the first woman with a pilot's license, Raymond de la Roche, uh, you can tell there's some French stuff going on here. They're all French, these women. Mm. She gets her license in 1910 and it's number 36. So there are only 35 recognised male pilots in the world at that time. Uh, women are right there from the beginning. And in my books, they should all simply be pilots. Sorry, Carla, rant over. But that is why Ricarda is so important. Raymond de la Roche, she might have got her licence in 1910, but although some women pilots flew commercially in the 1930s, the profession was pretty much cut off from women until the 70s. And even now, only around 1 in 20 commercial pilots are women. In fact, someone's estimated that the number of female pilots in Europe wouldn't even fill a Boeing 747. And so that is why she's so important. And that's why I want you to hear all about her. She succeeds in a man's world on her own terms, and her trip around the globe, well, you won't believe it, is filled with so many massive setbacks and law-breaking. To be honest, it's an absolute miracle that she makes it. Okay. And on top of that, she's ridiculed, she's condescended, she's called the flying housewife, the comely redhead, the former artist model. No one takes her seriously because of her gender, but she proves them all wrong. OK, you got me. Let's do it. <laughs> Prudence Ricarda Evelyn Routh is born in 1923. As a schoolgirl in Cambridge, she dreams big. She wants to be the first woman to fly around the world. Hang on a second. I mean, that's that's quite an extraordinary dream mm, for know. a, a, you know, a schoolgirl in Cambridge. I mean, where where does something like that come from? Does is there flying in the family? What what's going no, on there? No, there's no flying in the family. But I found an old newspaper article that she wrote, which gives us a bit of a clue. When I was a little girl. I always felt that I had to do something to justify my being here. Oof, well, I mean, there's your trapped history right there. People are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. It sounds mm. like someone's been telling Ricarda she won't amount to much. Mm. Well, we might not have to look very far. You were going on about feminine versions of job roles. And if you're wondering why she's called Ricarda, apparently it's down to her dad. 
As far back I can remember, it was always said that my father was so angry when I turned out to be a girl that he refused to speak to me on the day I was born. He'd already had two girls and I was to be called Richard. That's how I was christened, Ricarda. Wow, okay, I think we found our culprit. Well, that might be a bit harsh, but if not a culprit though, maybe at least a motive. Ricarda clearly feels the need to prove herself to her father. And less so, perhaps, to her doting husband, Norman Morrow-Tate. She marries him at the age of 21, and he's nearly 20 years her senior. And she has her first child, Anna, the next year. Now, Norman was absolutely smitten with Ricarda, and he gives us a clue about her character as well. She is determined and always does everything she says she will do. Oh, OK. So, so she finds someone who does actually believe in her. She sure does. And as well as proving herself to her dad... I think there's also something about crushing boredom. If you think about it, we're in the late 40s, Britain's just won a war, and yet the world Ricarda lives in, it's grey, it's drab, it's dull and rationed. After her flight, she describes life pretty bleakly. 21 years old, married, 22, learned to fly and Anna was born. 23, I did nothing. 24, I've started to do something. 25, I've finished it. I only hope it was worthwhile. Wow. Uh, 23, I did nothing. Mm. That's that's some manifesto, though. I'm intrigued by the years which sandwich it. 22, learn to fly. Mm -hmm. And 24, I've started to do something. So tell me, Carla, how does that actually work? So there's no non-military flying during the war. But once the civil aviation ban is lifted, Ricarda joins her local flying club and she has lessons at weekends. And after her very first lesson, she discovers that she's pregnant, but she carries on flying anyway. She doesn't care. And soon she's the first woman to get a post-war civil flying licence. Wow. And that's when she announces her plans to be the first woman to fly around the world. No one really pays much attention. But she's undeterred and she finds herself a navigator. His name's Michael Townsend. Now, remember that name because we're going to be hearing more about him later on. Oh, right, okay. So she names her plane Thursday's Child. Do you remember the old nursery rhyme? You know, Monday's Child is fair of face and all that. Yeah, yeah. I I think I was born on Tuesday. Oh, okay. What does that make me? Oh, Oswin, that means you're full of grace. Oh, (laughs) What day were you born on? Do you remember what day you were born Thursday. on? Thursday. You're a Thursday. There's something in it. Oh, and what day were you born on, Carl? Thursday. Oh, I think I need insane. to have some flying lessons, don't I? And so what, what does Thursday's child have to do? So she has far to go. Oh, OK. Right. I get it. Her plane has far to go. OK. And in August 1948, leaving Norman literally holding the baby, Ricarda taxis onto the runway at Croydon Airport. Hang on, hang on a second. She left Norman with little Anna. What's going on there? That's that's, uh, quite a statement at the very least. Well, think of the countless men who've done the same down the ages and they never get pilloried for abandoning their babies. Yeah, fair point. She hopes to be back in six weeks, but in the end, it takes Ricarda a lot longer than she hopes, a year and a day. Oh, okay. That is some delay. This is probably the point to bring on today's guest, someone who really knows all about the elation, the frustration, the exhaustion, maybe the boredom, which Ricarda went through. I'm delighted to welcome the aviator Polly Vasher, MBE, the first woman to fly solo in a single-engine aircraft around the world via Australia, And she's also the first solo woman flyer in a single-engine aircraft over the polar regions. 
Polly, we are so excited to have you with us today. Well, it's lovely to be here. And oh. I'm very excited to hear about uh, Thursday's child. And, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so I understand that you started flying later in life. You were a music teacher, weren't you, for many years. What made you suddenly decide to learn flying? Well, I think I'd always wanted to fly. And when I was a child, I used to stand on a chair and put my arms out and try and fly. And I thought, (laughs) why aren't I flying? (laughs) So I think I'd always wanted to do it. And then when I was 18 or 19, a student in London, I went for my very first, you know, glide in in a glider. And I was totally hooked. I can remember every second about that 10-minute gliding session. But I couldn't afford to go on doing it. I was an impoverished student. And when I then got older and um, a little bit older and thought I'd love to learn to fly, I could probably afford it, Um, I had a family and I thought mistakenly that it was dangerous, so I didn't, didn't learn to fly then. Life is a compromise. We went to Australia. My husband's job took him to Australia. And it was there that we decided, both of us, to learn to fly. And we had our first flying lesson on the same day in Canberra in Australia where we where we lived. On, and we both got our pilot's licenses while we were living in Australia. Mm. Peter and I had decided, that having had such fun in Australia, flying around Australia, we'd hire a plane and fly around America and Canada. And my instrument rating instructor said to me, why are you hiring an aeroplane? You've got a perfectly good one yourself. And that was the basis of the whole thing. She probably doesn't even realise, you know, that it had that effect on me. But this is how life is. And so I thought, wow, yes, perhaps I could fly my aeroplane across the North Atlantic. My husband followed in a jumbo. (laughs) (laughs) I know which one I would prefer to be in. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. What can I do next, you know? And so I thought, what I'd really like to do would be to fly around the world over the polar regions. But my son said, you know, Mum, he said, you really should fly around the world a more traditional way before you try the polar regions, and it'll give you some street cred. <laughs> so in 2001, I did just that, and I flew around straight down to Australia and up across the Pacific, island hopping across the Pacific. And then um, in 2003 and four, I did my polar flight. So that's how the story comes. You start, ask me one question, and you get wow. loads of answers. <laughs> And what was it that I just, you loved so much? I just love being in, in the air. I just yeah. love it. I love it. It's fantastic, you know, being up in the clouds. And it, it's a, it's quite a spiritual experience too. And, mm. and I'm, I find that being up there is just amazing. Yeah, Aww. fantastic. And sadly, I can't do it anymore, but that's... that's. Uh, and is, is there a difference for you when you when you're up there and it is raining and grey and cloudy and when it is bright blue and you can see for miles how how, how does it feel with the weather changing well, your think, experience i think there are there are several uh, answers in your question to your question when you're flying in cloud it doesn't matter how experienced you are you or you know the fact that i've got an instant rating um it's still you're very challenged you know is this a cloud that's going to, you know, cause me any problems. You know, can you? Uh, how, how is it a thundercloud? 
If you go into cloud and you're not properly trained, you can you have no idea which way up you are or anything, and you can, you know, nosedive into the ground in a matter of seconds, really. So you're really, really challenged all the time. If you're flying in the lovely blue skies, it's not so challenging, but it's it has a different it's it's beautiful. You can see the ground, you can, you know, and you and the amazing thing is you look at the ground and you think, it's exactly as it is on the map. <laughs> How surprising is that? <laughs> so we mentioned earlier that Ricarda faces a, a lot of issues and delays, like many more than she expected. And in fact, she hits problems pretty much as soon as she leaves England. Just a few weeks in, she crashes in France and Thursday's child wing and undercarriage are damaged. Then the engine needs replacing and that causes a two-month delay. And then to top it all off, the plane is written off in a crash landing in Alaska. Did you have to deal with any of these kinds of problems on any of your trips? Um, well, I think if to put it in the right perspective, in 1948, the, the aeroplanes were not so developed as they mm. were when I did it in... 2001, 2003. Um, so to give a, um, you know, her absolute due, um, what an amazing thing to do in a very early stage of flying, really. Mm. And um, so we, we, nothing must detract from that because that, that was fantastic. I didn't luckily crash my plane. <laughs> <laughs> I had a few scary moments i um i was held up a lot by the weather especially with the um polar regions mm. you know you can't go into the polar regions if there's any cloud because you'll pick up ice on the wings if you pick up ice on the wings then it makes the airplane heavy and you're likely it to get too heavy and then it'll just go down and crash yeah but the scariest moment was cross when I just crossed the North Pole uh, because I had extra fuel in the in the aeroplane. Mostly the fuels in the wings. They take out the extra seats. There were four seats in my aeroplane, size of a normal saloon car. Really, you take out three of them and you have extra fuel tanks in because you need to have the extra fuel to do the longer distances where there's nowhere to land, and you uh, use all your fuel inside first because you can't land with the fuel inside, it's too dangerous. So I'd crossed over the North Pole, I'd done 12 hours, I had two hours to run, and I finished the fuel in the, in the cabin, switched onto the wing tanks, had six hours of fuel in the wing tanks, and the engine stopped. And did you literally right. see the propeller slowing down? No, I didn't have time to see anything, I tell you. It, you are full on at that point. You God, are that absolutely must be full terrifying. on. It was. Oh, that was terrifying. My papers went flying, my camera went flying, and I did all the right things to get the engine going again. But then after that, I thought, oh, you know, will it stop again? Why did it stop? Was there ice in the fuel? What was the problem? You know, I was trying to work out what, what and how would I manage, you know, landing on the on the ice. I'd trained for this, but how would how would I manage setting up my tent? How would I manage if a polar bear came along and, and um, you know, I had learnt to shoot and had a gun with me, but I didn't want to be a polar bear dinner. Um, and then how would my husband manage without me? Oh. <laughs> so you can imagine, and then I could see the runway ahead of me at Resolute Bay in northern Canada after 14 hours or so. I could see it in the distance. Please don't stop, please don't stop, you know. But I discovered after I'd stopped and landed that I'd got an airlock 
when I changed tanks. Did but you that, go into shock afterwards? Well, I thought kind of processing probably, it. But yeah. I, there I was in an aeroplane on my own. I had to get to the end. Yeah. So you have to keep going, you know. I, I probably was, but um, and I was obviously very frightened. But mm. that was the worst. That was the worst of it all. So we heard with Ricarda that her trip took a lot longer than she expected it to. How long did your trips take? Were they what you imagined them to be? Or Well, the first one was relatively straightforward, as my son said. It would give me streets of cred. And, and I have to say at that point that I needed sponsors. And I got a, a lot of sponsors. Fantastic. Everything was sponsored. I was so lucky. The polar one um, was much more difficult because you think about it. The polar regions have 24 hours of daylight in the summer and 24 hours of darkness in the winter, and you can't cross the polar regions. You can't even fly in the polar regions. Even the professionals don't fly in the winter because it's minus 80 or something. I mean, it's really, really, really hostile. Um, So you have to wait. I had to wait for six months between crossing the North Pole, which I did in the the spring, and the the summer was coming in the 24 hours of daylight and better weather. Um, Then I had to wait for six months before I could even attempt going to the Antarctic. And so I spent the time, a lot of the time, flying around America. I did a complete circle of America. I did visits to the schools and we linked up with schools in the UK and there was a lot of work to be done. I mean, I was all the time on the, on the go. Uh, and then filling in the time and then making my way down to the south. One of the things about Ricarda's journey, just thinking about the money and stuff, is that she has to do... she. She has to sort of work in in bars and things when she's trying to raise them, when she gets stuck in America and Canada and things like that. And she has to work in bars. And I think you were saying that she does a bit of modelling or something like that. Yeah, anything to earn a few bob. Yeah. Mm. It's a very different... It's a different scenario altogether. I mean, the whole... Ricarda had a lot of funding problems. After writing off her first plane, she manages to raise money for another plane and it had the tongue-in-cheek name of Next Thursday's Child. (laughs) Uh, But her new plane is impounded and she breaks it out of jail and she pays the fines and flies illegally out of Canadian airspace. So let's hear from Ricarda about her fundraising. I am turning out the world's worst scrounger. It's horrible and degrading, and yet no one will ever know what an incredible amount I've gone without. Often I have never eaten a proper meal for more than a week. Something will turn up. Somehow, I'm going to borrow a plane to fly home. It sounds like raising money for you was quite straightforward, and you had all of these amazing sponsors on board. Well, nothing in this life is straightforward. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I worked very hard to get this sponsor. Sorry, sorry. I didn't tell me. Yeah. And what, what, just, I'm not quite sure what the right word is. Is it boredom? Is it loneliness? Is it tiredness? But how do you deal with your? You are literally on your own, and there's nobody to talk to. Do you start talking to the clouds? <laughs> no. Um, there are several things about it. One is I had a very strict routine. So I'd, 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 I knew it would be about 16 or 17 hours. You have a knee pad with a, which you write on, you know, because you have to keep a, a log of everything that's going on. And I'd put 16 lines and every hour I'd cross off a line. 
And every hour, I, you have to give a report to air traffic control. I had two PhD students doing research on, on the flight. So I actually was, you know, logging a lot of things for them. You check your engine, you check your fuel, you check your distance, you check your position. Uh, and so you're working quite hard. And then I did exercises, so I didn't get deep vein thrombosis or anything, because you're sitting in one seat, like a small car seat. So I had an exercise routine. I sipped some water and I ate a bit of a muesli bar every hour. And it suddenly come to the next hour and it went really, really quickly. She's telling us that she didn't have time to get bored. No, <laughs> but with all of those things to do, it sounds like you were really busy up there. You are very <laughs> yeah. busy when you're over an area where there's nowhere to land, I can tell you, because yes. you are very challenged. I mean, it is, you know, the bottom line is, if the engine fails, you're going into the water or onto the ice. Uh, it's um, when I get halfway across the Antarctic, I get too much headwind. And I have to take the terrible decision to turn around and go back. And I did a 14,000 nautical mile diversion to get back to New Zealand, where I would have been if I'd crossed right across the Antarctic. So, um, yeah, I was delayed a lot then. And how do you deal with, I mean, how does that feel emotionally? I mean, that must have been crushing. It must it have was. been so disappointing. It was absolutely crushing. I was, I was a basket case. <laughs> and I have to admit, you know, that I'm a human being as well. And, and my eyes, the tears were pouring down my face. Yeah. And, and, I was, and then, as I said to you, I did these flights. Not They were a personal challenge, but I did them to promote and raise funds for flying scholarships for disabled people, which is a program we have in this country to help disabled people through learning to fly. They're saying to them, you know, you may have lost a leg, but you can fly an aeroplane. So don't sit at home watching telly all day, get out and do something, you know. Mm. And it meant a lot to me to be involved with this charity. And when I turned, took the decision to turn around in the Antarctic, because if I had not got enough fuel to get across, I would have landed, maybe injured or killed myself, maybe wrecked my aeroplane, and maybe somebody coming to fetch me may have also been injured or killed or whatever. So I'd, it wasn't really an option. But I was gutted because mm. I'd put two years of really intensive training and preparation. And then I thought, you know, how much worse is it to lose a leg or to end up in a wheelchair? How much worse is that than me having to turn around in the Antarctic? And so I sat up and flew back to Rothera and I was, you know, okay then. Hmm. It, they saved me. I was trying to help them, but they actually helped me. And what advice would you give to somebody who wants to train as a pilot, maybe thinks, oh, it's not for me or I can't do it, but harbours this dream? Prepare really well. The key is preparation. Absolute key. And that's what I tell anybody who asks me who wants to do the same. I just, my biggest advice to them is preparation. And I took two years to prepare both of the world flights I did. It doesn't wow. sound as if Ricarda took two years. It sounds as if she just got on with it. For it. <laughs> yeah. I think you know, might she be had she had different issues, didn't she? I mean, she had issues that after the war, the women had helped a lot with the war. And a lot of women had been pilots in the war. Yeah. And, and suddenly they were expected to go back in the kitchen. And they didn't want to do that, you know, I mean, quite rightly. Yeah. And, and so basically her that was one of her issues, as you said earlier on, that she, she, she it was... 
considered not acceptable for a woman. I didn't have that problem. Or if I did, I didn't take any notice of it. And I didn't care that I'm a woman. I'm a pilot. Uh, but mm. I like quite like the name Aviatrix. So mm. It's quite fun. Yeah, me too. Like you said, yeah, that's what I think. Uh-huh. Of course, anybody can do anything. Mm. And if you think of these disabled people who fly airplanes when they have special adaptations, like if you're paralysed from the waist down, well, you can still fly an airplane because you can work the rudders, which you normally work with your feet. You have a, a hand control which works the rudders for you. And and if you have a, lost an arm or something. They have special sort of hooks and things that you can hold the the um, control column with, and there's a whole lot of things. You can always do something. You can always do something if you want to do it. Mm. Now, I'm 79. I'm nearly 80. So basically, I still think there's lots to do. It sounds absolutely astonishing, the stuff that you did. And, and I mean... And I, I, as an absolute dyed-in-the-wool coward, I would say terrifying as well from my perspective. Um, but Polly, you do what, other things. I can you do, do other, other things. things. I can do other and things. And that's the whole key to life. I find it so exciting because I go and give these talks. I don't do so many now because it's a long time ago. But, you know, I'm blaring away to an audience and then afterwards, if I have time, I manage to talk to some of them. And I find people have done such amazing things. You know, it, it may sound amazing and it sort of people get excited, much more excited about, for example, me flying around the world. But I found everybody, everybody's got potential. Everybody's got something they can do. We're all different. And that's what makes the world tick. It's so inspiring. <laughs> Well, in in terms of being inspiring then, Polly, we ask all of our guests to nominate someone for the Trapped History Hall of Fame, someone who we haven't heard of but really should have. So, Polly, who who would you like to nominate? Well, I have a friend called Jonathan Elwes, and uh, um, he is an amazing man. Um, he flies airplanes, so of course there's a lot of similarities in a way, and he flies a tiger moth, but so he's got an open cockpit and everything, wow. and, and um, very interesting man, and he's done lots of long-distance flying. And in 2013, he organised a flight for 25 light aircraft to fly to Ukraine just before the Russians annexed Crimea. And we... And we were lucky enough to be one of the 25. And we flew to Lviv and we flew to Kiev and we flew down to the Crimea, to Sevastopol, and we were treated like royalty. And we had um, we met the, the head of the um, Ukrainian Navy. We had a reception on their flagship, which we then saw on television sort of a few months, a couple of three or four months later, the same head of their, uh, the Ukrainian Navy had been taken by the Russians, you know, so it, it, it meant a lot. And Jonathan organised this flight for us all. But much more than that, since then, he has organised and helped bring over a whole raft of 
Ukrainian refugees. He's helped find all the um, the hosts to take them. He's encouraged people to to uh, all over the country. Little groups like our village has taken fifty Ukrainian refugees. But it was Jonathan that set the whole thing in in motion, and so he's helped an enormous amount of Ukrainian refugees in this terrible, terrible situation that they're in. Very traumatized. Their their towns completely destroyed. And and that maybe inspire me to do something further on, but that'll be a bit later. But Jonathan, then he then raised enough money to buy two um, old, uh, um, ex-NHS ambulances, and he and his wife drove them down to all the way down to the Ukraine border in in Poland and back. And he is always working to help and support the Ukrainians, and and I think. That is very much an unsung hero. I don't think he's ever been recognised for any of this work that he's done. And he would be the first to be the most modest and, and feel embarrassed that I'd nominated him. But I, I think he's a great guy and certainly an unsung hero. I mean, that's what that's our tagline, unsung yeah. heroes. So yeah, yeah. Well, thank that's, you. that's what made me think of him. He oh, should be in your Hall of Fame. Very worthy entrant. He sounds amazing. Jonathan Elwes. I mean, it, it, that's the first living uh, member of the Hall of Fame, I think. Mm, I think everyone yeah. else um, uh, is much more historical. Oh, but really? That, should yeah. I have done somebody historical? No, no not at all. No. You can do anyone you like. It's fine. No, yeah. yes. <laughs> that is, and no, and it's, I mean, he will have great company in the Hall of Fame. Mm. There are some wonderful people there. <laughs> So, Carla, what happened next? I mean, did, did Ricarda have grand plans for more flights around the world? Did she want to go and fly across the North Pole or the no, South Pole? No, not exactly. So eight months later, she gives birth to another baby, a boy called Giles. But just do the maths. Norman, her husband, certainly did. Oh, it's oh not dear. his boy. Okay. Giles is Michael Townsend's son. Uh, the Do you remember navigator. that name? Yes, the navigator. The navigator. Oh, okay, yes. right. I'm with you. So her affair with Michael and her subsequent divorce from Norman grab bigger newspaper headlines than her trip does. And what I found really interesting is that she writes a newspaper article after she lands, slamming people and the media for gossiping about her and Michael. I have a message for the rumour mongers. The people with the smutty minds and the sneaky ones who peer from behind the curtains and whisper little scraps of gossip over the teapots. I have heard how you accuse me of running away from my husband and child. And I know what you've said about my morals, but I don't really care what you think, because people who know me know how very dearly I love my husband. I mean... The woman has front. Yeah. She was pregnant by Michael when she wrote that article. So what was she playing oh, at? Just deny, <laughs> deny, deny. She would do very well in the current government. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, the press coverage of the divorce is brutal. She's called an obstinate redhead who neglects her family. Michael's ordered to pay Norman £500 damages for stealing Ricarda's affection, as if she had no say in it. And she also lost custody of her daughter. And then after that, Ricarda really withdraws from public life and, and fades into history. She does earn a bit of money where she can, but mostly she's living off benefits. I have an electric sewing machine. I make things for neighbours' kids for a few odd shillings. As for domesticity, I'll meet any housewife with a cooker or a sweeper or down on my knees and show her as good as she can give. 
Despite living really close to the bone, Ricarda and Michael prove all the critics wrong and they live happily together until she passes away in 1982. So hang on a second. So that makes her, what, she was born in uh, 23. That makes her 59. Mm -hmm. Nellie Bly, the other circumnavigator she was 57 when she died i mean what, mm. what what is it with these pioneers it feels as if their bodies just run out of steam i know yeah i suppose that's not the point though I mean, the 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 point ultimately is that ricarda did something truly amazing and yet somehow it could never be good enough she was castigated for leaving her husband and baby and then damned all over again for her affair with michael Everywhere I found people who condemned me. If they didn't condemn me for my madness, they condemned me for what they thought was my badness. Yes, and at the same time, there's this astonishing drive. Ricarda almost has to do this, whatever the cost. There's something pushing her on at a very primeval level. And it just goes to show that if you set your mind to something, if it's simply impossible to ignore, if it's propelling you so deeply well, then you're going to be single-minded, even ruthless. And I think Nellie had that. And of course, Ricarda had bucket loads of it. Yeah, there's something hugely unfair about this. Um, but it does come back to to something else you said at the beginning and, and something which I think Polly talked about too, about sort of the boredom of what life was like just after the Second World War. I mean, mm. war, war is hell and is terrible. And, and we talked about that with Joshua Levine when mm. we were featuring Peter Stevens. But it is also exciting. Mm. And people just a few years older than Ricardo will have had their horizons blown open wide by being in the military or working in factories. For them, the world must have felt huge, the possibilities endless. And yet for Ricarda, it was sort of getting smaller. The walls are closing in. Domesticity was almost, it feels as it was almost suffocating her and becoming a mother at the age of 22. And and that that thing she says at Mm. 23, I did nothing. Mm. I get that really strong feeling that Ricarda needs to sort of break out of this, that she wants to grab life with both hands. And she says as much. This is how I would have looked at it. Nobody can tell how long they have to live. That's one of the things that you were saying as well, Polly. You could go under a bus tomorrow. Hmm. Nobody can tell how long they have to live. So you'd better get out there and do your thing while you've got the chance. <laughs> yes. And that's ultimately, that is what Ricarda did. She just kept on going when so many others would have thrown in the towel. She proved, even if only to herself, that if you work really hard, you ignore the naysayers, you can achieve your dreams. So what's up next, Carla? Emmy Noether, the greatest mathematician of the 20th century. Oh, OK. I'm going to have to get out my calculator for that. You will, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Look forward to that. Thank you. You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Carla O'Shaughnessy and Oswin Baker. Our engineer has been MK Lee. Catch up with more Trapped History on Instagram and visit trappedhistory.com transcripts, extended interviews and more. And remember what James Baldwin said, people are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. See you soon.